Welcome to Kidney Commute, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation, driven by the interprofessional team with emphasis on the patient voice. In each episode, we will incorporate the perspectives of the different members of the kidney team as well as the patient. Join our huddle on all things kidney health and allow new perspectives to inspire collaboration in your practice. Eligible listeners can earn credit along the way. The Kidney Commute, a continuing education podcast planned by the team for the team. Welcome back to the Kidney Commute, y'all. I'm Mary Ryder Sori, a nurse practitioner, part of the team. And on today's episode, we're going to be talking about vaccines, which you may ask, what's the point of that? Well, it's not just so I can make bad puns. Uh, the point is, is that infections are a major cause of morbidity and mortality for patients, especially those with kidney disease. And it's a timely topic because, as everyone knows, we're in the middle of a pandemic. And unfortunately, vaccines, both new and old, are, are underutilized, uh, which presents us with an opportunity as the nephrology team to help save lives by increasing the vaccination rate. So we're going to talk today as an interprofessional team, and I'm actually just going to pass it over to them to let them introduce themselves, and then we're going to jump right into it. Hi, my name is Mary Balliker, and I'm a transplant recipient times four, and also been on hemodialysis, and I'm excited to be here today to share um, a couple of my perspectives in regards to vaccines. Hi, I'm Osama Oshami. I'm a nephrologist at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Hi, I'm Dory Minch. I'm a nephrology social worker at Wake Forest Baptist Transplant Center in North Carolina. And my name is Kristen O'Toole, and I'm a transplant dietitian at UW Health Transplant Center in Madison, Wisconsin. I love it. It's a dream kidney team cross country coming together. With that, now that you guys have met our panel for today, I'm just going to jump right into the questions, and I'm going to start with Osama. First question is, is are we talking about COVID vaccines today, Osama? That's a, that's a good question, Mary. I mean, I think that while the topic of COVID vaccines is important and has garnered a lot of national and international attention, today we should focus on the many other vaccines that we all have taken and have also been shown to be important for the survival of our patients with chronic kidney disease as well. There's quite a lot of them. So I was actually wondering if you could give us a quick rundown of the vaccines that are indicated for patients with kidney disease. No, we're talking about adults today, not children. Sure thing. So, you know, there are many uh, vaccines uh, that are indicated for our patients with uh, chronic kidney disease. Some of them, of course, cross over with the vaccines that the general population gets. So an example would be the influenza vaccine, right? So it's a vaccine that they get for the seasonal flu. Then there's the Tdap vaccine. So that's the tetanus, diphtheria, and whooping cough uh, vaccine. There's the pneumococcal vaccines, right, which helps protect our patients from pneumonia, the hepatitis B vaccine, uh, the zoster vaccine, which is shingles, right, for, uh, for our patients as well, the HPV vaccine, uh, which protects against cancers and genital warts caused by the human papillomavirus, the MMR vaccine for measles, mumps, and rubella, and the varicella vaccine, which protects us against chickenpox. Now, that being said, it's also important for us to know who's eligible for the vaccines and when the vaccines should be given. The influenza vaccine, ideally, everyone should be vaccinated by the end of October. For the Tdap vaccine, that protects against three diseases. Most children are given five shots between the ages of two months and six years. 
Now, if the vaccination wasn't done during childhood, one dose of the Tdap vaccine was given at age 11. And a booster vaccine for tetanus and diphtheria should be given every 10 years. People on dialysis need to receive the Tdap vaccine and the TD booster for protection against these diseases. Regarding the pneumococcal vaccine, we have two types. There's the Pneumovax 23 and the Prevnar 13. Patients with chronic kidney disease should have received the Prevnar 13 between the ages of 19 and 64. And then after a wait time of at least eight weeks, they received the Pneumovax 23 vaccine. Also, during the time that they're between the ages of 19 and 64. If five years pass after that, and they're still between the ages of 19 and 64, they get another shot of the Pneumovax 23. And then you wait another five years. If they are then past the age of 65, they get one last shot of the Pneumovax 23, and then they are done. So that's one important thing to consider. Basically, depending on how early you get the Prevnar 13 and that age range of 19 to 64, determines how many more shots of the Pneumovax 23 you're going to need. Now, for the hepatitis B vaccine, we're all familiar with the three uh, series vaccine, but there's actually also uh, a two-dose vaccine that's, that was approved in 2017, and it's called the Heplisav B. So these are two doses that are given one month apart, as opposed to the three series where there should be at least four weeks between doses one and two, and at least eight weeks between doses two and three. The Zoster vaccine protects against shingles and should be given to patients who are 50 years and older. For the HPV vaccine, if you're an adult through age 26, you can get it. It's not recommended for everyone who's older than age 26, but some adults between ages 27 and 45 who are not already vaccinated may decide to get the HPV vaccine after speaking with their provider. The MMR vaccine should be given to everyone who was born in 1957 or after and has not gotten the vaccine. And for the varicella vaccine, which protects against chickenpox, as we discussed, it should be given for patients who were born in 1980 or after and have not gotten two doses of this vaccine or do not have immunity. So these are all uh, the vaccines that are uh, indicated for our patients with chronic kidney disease at different times along the course, uh, but things that are important to keep in mind when we're uh, seeing our patients with chronic kidney disease. I actually want to shift gears and uh, talk to our dietitian, Kristen, to get her perspective. You know, we have a lot of vaccines that these patients have to get, but I think there's some general advice that we can give to patients before all of these vaccines. And I wanted to see if you could weigh in on the dietitian's perspective on what we should be talking to our patients about in terms of diet before, during, and after the vaccination. Absolutely. Thanks for the question. I think it's important to discuss some of the possible side effects that may impact one's ability to eat meals as usual. Some of those side effects include things like fever or nausea, fatigue, and loss of appetite. And we know when we're feeling unwell, it may be very easy to eat less or skip meals, which can make it difficult to keep up strength, prevent dehydration, and for those monitoring blood sugars, prevent low blood sugars. In these cases, it's nice to encourage people to treat food like medication, you know, eat on a schedule, set an alarm to remember to eat so that you're not skipping meals and not getting adequate nutrition. So by reviewing some of these potential, potential side effects with people, um, they can have a plan ahead of time to have some 
small meals or snacks prepared at home and ready to go in case they do experience side effects. And so some strategies that could be discussed and applied in the situation is consuming smaller, more frequent meals or snacks, you know, thinking about eating every two to three hours and choosing foods that are bland, easily digested, so nothing too spicy or acidic or overly greasy or fatty and foods that are easier to grab and go when feeling very tired or worn out. Examples can include peanut butter and crackers, half a tuna salad or chicken salad sandwich and canned fruits, protein bars or shakes, or even low sodium TV dinners. Sipping on calorie containing beverages such as apple or cranberry juice or clear protein supplements are also good ways to get into some, get in some nutrition, prevent dehydration and help keep blood sugars up, prevent any lows. So for those managing blood sugars, they may need to also check their sugars more often and refer to any guidelines that they may have gotten from their providers about how to adjust medications if they're not eating meals like normal. This may be reducing insulin or skipping oral medications as needed to prevent low blood sugars. In addition, when experiencing nausea, ginger can be a really helpful tool. Um, so sipping on ginger tea, ginger sodas, or even taking in ginger chews to help with some more intense bouts of nausea. And for milder cases of nausea, um, boiled or baked lean proteins, eggs, plain noodles and rice, soft canned fruits and things can be really great ways to, to keep up the nutrition. So these would be some basic strategies that could be discussed re regarding diet and side effects from that vaccinations with, you know, an overall strong emphasis on importance of keeping up nutrition. I think those are great tips for us, especially as clinicians, to help patients anticipate. You know, it's not just to help them anticipate, oh, you have a three-shot series coming up. This is how you deal with it. You can be a little groggy afterwards and have a plan in place to prevent it from being even worse. I want to take it back to specific vaccines. I'm going to send this question to Osama. I know you listed all of the vaccines that are indicated for patients with CKD. I would like to start with hepatitis B first. You know, I know many of us take hepatitis B vaccines for granted, but the reality is not that long ago, we had outbreaks of hepatitis B in the, in the dialysis world uh, in the U.S. particularly. Can you tell us more about that, Osama? Sure thing. You know, between April and August of 1994, there was an outbreak of hepatitis B in five chronic dialysis centers. Uh, they were uh, across California, Nebraska, and Texas. And the hepatitis B rates in those units were variable amongst those patients, but they were as high as 70% in one of the centers in Texas, which is an incredibly high percentage of patients to have hepatitis B. Now, when you look at it in terms of the context, this isn't really that surprising because hepatitis B vaccines, while they have been recommended for dialysis patients since they became available in 1982, by 1993, which is the year before this outbreak, only 29% of dialysis patients in the U.S. had been vaccinated against hepatitis B. Yeah, I think most people listening to this podcast have seen a dialysis unit, but if you haven't, you got a room full of several patients. It can be a dozen, multiple dozen, but they're all sitting very close to each other and more than one nurse or one nurse is taking care of more than one patient. And same with patient techs. Even though we do great care, standard care, washing our hands and things, dialysis, you know, accidents can still happen. The vaccine is really something that is important for our patients, especially 
in the hemodialysis population. We'll talk more about in the transplant population too, but there's very real protection from these vaccines for our patients in the dialysis units. On that note, we, you know, I mentioned that it's important to get these vaccines, but some patients don't maintain an immune response to the hep B vaccine. What would you say are some steps we can take as clinicians to help a patient improve their response or maintain it so that they get and keep the protection from these vaccines? I think it's important to keep in mind that compared with the response rate of greater than 90% that we see uh, in patients without renal failure, only about 50 to 60% of patients on dialysis develop antibodies after they get the hepatitis B vaccine. And patients with, who are not on dialysis, who have CKD, tend to actually have a higher antibody response. So this suggests that the immune response really does correlate with the degree of renal failure. So it's safe to assume that as the kidneys get worse, the chances of patients responding to the vaccine tends to go down. You know, amongst patients who don't respond to the, this primary three-dose series of hepatitis B vaccine. And I know that there's a newer two-dose series that, that we give as well. But amongst those patients who don't respond, about 25 to 50% of those with normal immune status respond to an additional vaccine dose. And 50 to 75% respond to three additional doses. So you have the option of either giving a booster shot for the hepatitis B, but the chances of success are only about a quarter to a half, right? But if you want to increase your odds, then you just repeat the full three series again. For patients who don't respond, right, even after getting the six doses of the vaccine, there's really no data that exists that indicates additional doses would induce an antibody response, right? So those patients we don't really have guidelines to follow as to how to go about administering the hepatitis B vaccines, how many more doses should they be getting. Uh, that part really isn't clear. Now, amongst the patients with a normal immune status who respond to the primary series of hepatitis B, protection against hepatitis B persists, even when the antibody titers are undetectable. But amongst dialysis patients who do respond to the vaccine, protection against the vaccine is not maintained when the antibody titers fall below the protective levels. And for those listening who are curious as to what this protective level is, when we check the hepatitis B antibody levels, you want it to be greater than 10 milli international units per milliliter, right? So again, a person with a completely normal immune system no longer having uh, antibody levels is still protected. A dialysis patient that no longer has antibody levels is no longer protected and should then be under pursuit for a booster shot or an extra three series. In general, we say that hepatitis B surface antigen should be checked every six months. But for patients who don't respond, they should be tested at least every three months. I think in a lot of the dialysis units, just to keep things routine, right, they test everybody for the surface antigen level every three months, which I think is reasonable to keep things uniform and easier to follow for both the providers, the nurses, and the patients themselves. I think the key is, is having a systematic way to monitor that for your patients. I kind of want to 
jump to the patient again, getting vaccinated before the transplant uh, improves the antibody response. But it can actually also be a requirement in some cases to even be listed for a transplant. Can you talk about vaccination requirements uh, and what your experience has been and just your thoughts on those? Well, I think we kind of get a boatload of things thrown at us when we want to get listed for transplant. And it's really to protect us to be the best candidate and to actually have a transplant and have the best outcomes. And so, you know, a lot of the tests that we actually look at is making sure we've had a flu shot or the hepatitis shot. Um, I think, you know, we also, you know, they go back and look at what, what vaccines we've had as a child, whether we've had chicken pox or had the vaccine, polio. You know, a, a prime example is that I wish the, there was a live virus vaccine out for shingles. I was not able to get that because of being immune compromised at the time. And so I ended up getting shingles. It was the most painful thing that I've probably ever gone through. When the vaccine, the newer vaccine for um, shingles came out, I was like in line, like, I don't want to ever, ever get this again. Take it really seriously and to give ourselves really the best quality of life. And so I think the vaccine requirements are really there for a reason. And I think, you know, even working with my transplant team, whether it was my nephrologist, my transplant coordinator, I think it's really important to really look at all of that. And I think one of the things Kristen shared, which I think was wonderful, is the tips, you know, for a patient. I think being able to talk about, you know, being prepared, you might get a fever or you might have this after the vaccine and be prepared. You know, that's another thing I think that I looked at for me when we started this whole pandemic. You know, what should I have in place if I get sick, if I get COVID and what if I get the vaccine? So, you know, having that um, relationship with your healthcare professionals and talking with them and talking through it, I think what is the best thing for you to do based on your, your, your background, your health background? I think talking about those requirements before transplant, you know, I kind of wish that I was starting the whole process over again and I was able to get some of these vaccines prior to transplant and, you know, that maybe I could have actually had more of an immune response and been a little bit safer and protecting that kidney later. And that's something I can have the rest of my life is what we all want, right? When we're talking to patients is making sure that we actually talk about, it's not just a requirement and having it said that way, um, I think is that we're really trying to protect you as a patient to get through safe and have the best outcomes. Just like a seatbelt, it's there for a reason. It's not just to be mean, it will save your life. So continue on. I'd like to talk about the influenza vaccine and I'm gonna ask Osama again, uh, some questions. So, you know, there's two types of vaccines in terms of the influenza. Uh, there's the live and the inactivated. For patients with kidney disease, does it matter which one they take? And what about the high dose vaccine? Is that something to consider? So I think that's that's a very good and important question, given how, you know, how we get the influenza vaccine every year. So, for example, for the 2021-2022 flu season, right, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices recommended the annual influenza vaccine for everyone who is six months and older uh, with any licensed influenza vaccine that is appropriate. Right, so there was the inactivated influenza vaccine, there's the recombinant influenza vaccine, and then there's the live attenuated nasal spray influenza vaccine. And it didn't really express any particular preference for any vaccine over another. Now, that being said, 
all the nasal spray influenza vaccines are this live attenuated spray. One of the medical conditions that there's a precaution to the use of this spray is actually kidney disease. I would refrain or use with caution in patients with chronic kidney disease, the live attenuated nasal spray influenza vaccine. In regards to the regular dose versus the high dose influenza vaccine, there was a study that was published in CJSON in 2018 that found that patients who with chronic kidney disease who received the high dose influenza vaccine uh, compared with those who got the standard dose influenza vaccine had lower rates of hospitalizations on dialysis. But that was between the years 2016 and 2017. But those same findings were not seen when they looked at dialysis patient admissions between 2015 to 2016. So I would say there's no clear data out there that would necessarily recommend high-dose influenza vaccines for our dialysis patients compared to the standard. At best, it's variable. There could be a benefit, but we don't know for sure sort of tangentially related, or at least to the live uh, versus the recombinant debate. Um, what about the varicella zoster vaccine? The recommendations for that change once somebody is has a kidney transplant or when they're listed for a transplant? Right now, we have these two licensed injectable herpes zoster vaccines, right? So like you said, there's the live attenuated one, and then there's the adjuvant recombinant subunit one. And there's a 30 to 40% increased risk of herpes zoster in CKD patients compared with the normal population. So that's another reason why we really care about our uh, CKD patients uh, getting the herpes zoster uh, vaccines. To, to investigate this more, there was actually a, a report that was published uh, on KI reports uh, last year in 2021, at a total of over 400,000 patients that were included. 101,000 of those patients actually got the Zoster vaccine, and over 300,000 were control patients who didn't get it. And these were eight studies that were looking at patients with kidney disease. And they found that the patients who did get the herpes zoster vaccine, risk of uh, getting herpes zoster was half of what it is compared to the controls, right? So the hazard ratio was 0.55. And it was a pretty statistically significant finding. Uh, which is, you know, another thing to bolster our patients having it. The evidence for using either one, though, the live attenuated version versus the adjuvant recombinant version, it's type one evidence for both, which means it's high level of evidence. So there's no clear winner out of the two, as long as the patient's able to get the HZV uh, vaccine. And in regards to your question about transplant patients, while the requirements for transplant, right, one of the requirements for transplant is that patients be up to date with their vaccinations, normally patients who qualify are those who are 50 years or older, but if you're listed for a transplant, you may actually be able to get the Zoster vaccine earlier than that. And for that, I would recommend that, you know, patients seek out and speak to their providers and coordinators to find out exactly what the requirements are and what the changes are regarding that. But they do have the ability to get the Zoster vaccine and actually the pneumococcal vaccine earlier as well. Dory, how can we address patients' vaccine hesitancy, ease their fears or motivate them 
to get the vaccine? Or would you even say that that's what we should do? Is it is it more of a how should we talk to them approach? Well, I think it's a balance of both. You know, many people express and experience vaccine hesitancy, and some common reasons for this include the mistrust of the medical community and misinformation. Mistrust in the medical community has deep seeds for many, and especially minority populations. And the accessibility of information through social media platforms can make finding accurate information especially difficult. I will say that one thing that has come out of um, significant COVID vaccine hesitancy is the creation of a conversation guide from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And this really does translate into most vaccine hesitancy. So being aware of some of the following things can help providers to um, improve relationships with patients regarding their vaccine conversations. So it's important to be aware of how we as healthcare professionals feel about hesitancy? Do we feel that our patients should just listen to us and do what we tell them? Are we prepared to listen to what their feelings are about the vaccine and provide accurate education and information for that? Make sure that you're ready to be with your patient where they are rather than to just engage in an argument. The goal is to transition from how do I, the provider, get the patient to do what I want them to do, to how do I get this person to do what they want to do? And we need to understand that resistance to change is normal. This is expected and it's normal part of the psychological processes. I think even in some established providers, we have different a difficult time occasionally straying from what our normal practice is to adopt new practices that may be better. Encourage your patients to explore their emotional sources of resistance rather than confront them with more forceful arguments. It's important to respect people's agency. They have the ability to choose to act with purpose and be clear from the beginning of the conversation that this is their choice whether or not they want to get vaccinated. Mary, what do you think about this? I'd love to hear the patient perspective. Thank you, Dory. I really appreciate your, your um, matter of fact of what hesitancy is with patients. And I think you really described it very well. I know even for myself, I've actually been mostly in my career, I've been in healthcare. So I think I've been around it for a long time. And because of that, I really do believe that knowing that I'm a transplant recipient, being immune compromised, I know I'm more susceptible to viruses. And I also know that I could have more of a severe reaction. So whether it's the flu, whether it's COVID, whether it's the shingles, all of those things, I know I'm higher risk. And because of that, I think that it is really important that when we're looking at some of these requirements to be listed for transplant, but also, you know, when we're weary about, you know, should we get this vaccine? I'll give a, a, an example of when, um, when we first came and the vaccines were coming out for COVID. Um, my first reaction was, I want to protect this kidney. I want to make sure that this vaccine is safe. Has it been tested in the kidney population? What could it possibly do? Could it cause a rejection? And I can tell you, many patients are worried, especially after transplant, that that could happen. And so one of the things I think that we need to do is making sure that we know as patients that we can have that ability to talk with our healthcare staff and professionals to actually ask them those questions, you know, wanting to know, is this safe for me to take? And again, sometimes we have new viruses and new things that pop up and we don't know a lot about it. So we have to think of it as being in a clinical trial. And I know that, but if I know that what's worse than getting the vaccine that I could possibly get and it 
I could die. Or if I get this vaccine, I have a better chance of not having severe reaction and more susceptibility to, you know, being admitted into the hospital. So those are really important. I think for me, I have been weary at times with getting vaccines. It's never stopped me, but I've always asked a lot of questions. I wanted to know a little bit more about it. How is it, you know, what are the side effects? What should I be looking for? How should I prepare? And, you know, what would the outcome of that be? I think, you know, herpes zoster is another prime example. It was not around when I was 10 years old. And I think, you know, knowing that as a transplant recipient, we heard earlier is that we're higher risk as patients. Um, This population is higher risk. And so if we can lower that risk that could cause unhealthy outcomes for us, I think for me, the best thing that I always look at and I had since I was diagnosed at the age of nine, is that I want the best quality of life that I can have. And what that may include is also make sure that I get all the vaccinations and all the tests that I need to make sure that I am maintaining all the preventive care that I need. And so to me, vaccination is a preventive care. I agree with everything you just said. And I think that's really great advice to... And you do talk to the patients, but it's just as important to listen and let it be an open dialogue. Um, But I do want to kind of open this up. What are y'all's thoughts on what we can do to work together to help our patients understand the importance of vaccination? Osama, you know, I'd love to hear your take on that and also about how we can work with our primary care providers to improve the vaccination rates on our patients. Absolutely. Uh, I think... Uh, you kind of hit the nail on the head there, right? Regarding primary care physicians, we see a lot of patients in clinic and there are many patients who basically tend to treat their nephrologist because of how close of a relationship that they have with the nephrologist kind of as their primary care physician, right? We do follow a lot of the internal uh, medicine side of things, right? For our patients, go over their labs, what they need. And that makes sense because the kidney disease is very intertwined with a lot of their other comorbidities like hypopressure, diabetes. So we tend to follow um, a lot of these patients' uh, progression. However, things like vaccination are important and very hard to keep up with. You know, and a lot of the times we rely on the patients to let us know what vaccines they got, what vaccines they didn't get. They may not always be the best historians when it comes to that. Uh, something as simple as, you know, the pneumonia vaccine, right, where you have, you know, the, the Prevnar and the Pneumovax, and the patients should have gotten the Prevnar between the ages of 19 and 64, and then wait, you know, and then get the Pneumovax eight weeks later. And then, you know, there's that cutoff at 65 years old, where the patient should be getting another dose of the Pneumovax it's very hard to keep track of something like that, for example, unless we have a direct line of communication with the patient's primary care physicians and we know what date, when did they get these shots, how many of them did they get. And I think that importance brings us together as providers and helps underscore in the patient's mind that that's important. Whereas a lot of times we find ourselves in a situation where the patient says, yeah, I think I got this vaccine before with my primary. I'll get back to you and let you know and kind of falls through the cracks. And we're left in a situation where we're not sure who is managing what in regards to the patient's vaccinations. 
you know, when we give vaccines, we should also be in touch with the primary care physicians to make sure that they're aware of what shots their patients have gotten so that they don't double up uh, or think that, you know, that that part hasn't been covered. Uh, I think Dory will probably have some good input as well about this, you know, from the social work side of things regarding our patients' uh, care with their primary care physicians as well. Well, you know, ideally people are connected with their primary care physician throughout their life. And, and, and in a perfect world, it would be your primary care physician who is monitoring your, your labs and refer you to appropriate specialists, whether it be a nephrologist, a pulmonologist, a cardiologist, and you'd have that connection to that primary care provider. But for many cases, secondary to various health disparities, adults with end-stage renal disease are not connected to the health system until they reach an end-stage renal disease crisis. And so we have to understand that these health, what these health disparities are in order to advance the healthcare equity, including the awareness of, of the history and the present day impact of racism among those who identify as Black, Indigenous, or people of color, and many who often have experienced discrimination while accessing and using healthcare. They may not trust our services or our recommendations or understand them. Government-funded initiatives because of poor prior experience or family history of poor prior experience. And given the history of medical and research abuse in these communities, health recommendations may be routinely scrutinized with anxiety from our patients. And so consider what our recommendations mean for those who identify as Black, Indigenous, or people of color who choose to be vaccinated and have anxieties that are rooted in this historical racial discrimination. Prior to the conversation that you're having with your patient, whether it be about vaccine or even about initiated a treatment, it may be helpful to discuss with a colleague or one of your peers your feelings about vaccine hesitancy and to be clear on your why. And then when beginning the conversation, it can be helpful to ask permission to discuss their thoughts and concerns about vaccines and to validate them. During that conversation, you should be ready to listen with attention and be ready to sit in silence and understand that you may not have all the answers to the concerns that your patients have. Ask questions that clarify, but don't judge, such as, well, what I'm hearing you say is this, is that right? Or I'm not quite sure I understand what you mean by what their statement is. Understand that this may take more than one conversation. I know that our team has multiple conversations about various vaccines, and it starts with the dialysis center and comes to the transplant center. And as a team, we help our patients reach their maximum health potential. Statements like, I believe in the efficacy of safety of a vaccine, or I've received it myself and give some personal experience can really validate your impact on the patient, but to recognize that ultimately that is your patient's decision on, on what they want to do with the vaccine. Dory, I think some of the things that you were just saying really hit home to me. As a patient, I feel that we all have different connections and sometimes hearing it from our, our PCP to our nephrologist, to our social worker, to our dietitian, whoever it may be, but hearing it again, that they're supportive of that decision of, you know, having the importance of the vaccines. And I think a lot of it's that connection that you have with whoever that person is. And I think we need to make sure that if it's a PCP or for me, it's always been my nephrologist. My transplant nephrologist is the one that I probably go to for most of my questions. But everybody, all patients are different. You know, it could be their PCP, it could be their nephrologist. 
And even from a nutrition perspective, a dietitian can encourage the importance of vaccinations. And as part of that discussion about vaccinations, be that resource for discussing side effects and then potential dietary strategies to help maintain good nutritional status when feeling poorly and not able to eat like normal. So a dietitian can have a very important role on the kidney team and be a resource for patients in the team. I think these are all such excellent points uh, that y'all have made. And I'm actually going to write some of these down and take these into my own practice. But I think taking that time to talk to the patient and not just do it as a dismissive, you must do this and not leave it open-ended and not revisit the conversation and be more supportive, even if you disagree with the patient. First of all, I think that leaves the door open for, for future conversations, but does help build the trust. And I think the more they hear the anecdotes, you know, it's not exactly peer pressure, but the more they hear that, I do think that's a good thing. I think I've asked enough questions for today. I've been thrilled with today's panel. I want to thank all of you guys for participating in this. Before we close things up, I just want to kind of highlight the takeaway points that I have from today. First of all, I would say that vaccines are important and they save lives and that very important for patients with kidney disease to get these vaccines because they are at high risk for many of the infections that we talked about today. Second takeaway point that I, I, I have is that vaccinating as early as possible in kidney disease does generally correlate with a better immune response to the vaccine in a sustained one. Uh, and particularly for uh, any live vaccines where possible to give before a kidney transplant, that's, some, that's something to consider too. And then another takeaway point, really just to have a systematic approach within your discussions with patients and realize that it may take more than one conversation to help get them to get vaccinated, but ongoing counseling and listening to the patient are really what I take away. Uh, so with that, I think I'm going to close things up. And again, thank you to all of our panel members for their contributions for today's uh, discussion. And to all our listeners, thank you for joining us on this ride of the kidney commute. Uh, remember, uh, eligible audiences can earn CE credit for listening to this episode. All you've got to do is just click the link in the episode description, uh, but not while you're driving. And if you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please email us, the team, at nkfpodcast at kidney.org. Stay tuned for future huddles. And in the meantime, continue to let new perspectives inspire your practice.